Digital Zenith Podcast, PC gaming discussion, analysis, and culture. Episode 3 of the Digital Zenith Podcast. I do apologize, first and foremost, for the delay between number 2 and number 3, but... Unfortunately, as all of you know, life can really get in the way sometimes and really fuck you up. Um, I had a very, very busy November and December with work. As I said before, this is a passion project. I don't make any money from this. Um, the job that does provide me with my income gave me a lot of responsibilities and obligations the past couple months. I had to take care of that. And then on top of that, you have the holidays and family obligations and all these types of things. So, I do apologize for the delay, but it's actually rather timely because there were a number of games that I wanted to finish playing before the end of the year, because um, originally, for episode 4 or 5, I was going to talk about my favorite games from 2016 or some standout gaming moments from 2016, so now what I'm going to do is I'm still going to talk about a few of the games that were never made that should have been made, in my opinion, and it's a shame that they weren't made. But in addition to that, I'm also going to talk about my favorite gaming moments of 2016, the titles that really stood out to me, and the titles that, quite frankly, fell flat on their face and failed to impress me much at all. Uh, there were a number of those as well. Uh, in addition to that, I'd also like to say thank you to those of you who are listening. I only put uh, two episodes of my podcast up. I've done no advertising. I've not spammed this podcast on any Reddits, on any forums. I've just put put this podcast on iTunes. I put it on SoundCloud. I listed it on a bunch of podcast RSS feeds. And I just said, let's see what happens. Let's see if it can spread organically. And I wasn't expecting a lot of listens for those reasons. But here we are a couple months after me posting my first two episodes, and I got quite a bit more listens than I actually thought that I would. And to top it all off, I actually had a couple of people email me and tweet me uh, around Christmas asking where episode three was. And I can't tell you how motivating that was, because when you create something like this, you have no idea if people are going to like it, or if they're going to hate it, or if they're going to think you sound ridiculous, or if they think that you have something interesting to say. And even though I only had a couple of those messages sent to me, it was incredibly motivating to know that there are people out there that are enjoying the content that I'm creating. Uh, That's the whole purpose of this thing is to give back to the community that I love so much that gives me so much enjoyment and that I'm so passionate about. One more thing I want to mention before we dive into anything else is When it comes to this podcast, I want to try something a little different today. The first two podcasts, I'm not sure if any of you noticed, but I did get a little feedback from one person who said that he found it unnatural that the podcast had no pauses or no, and I wasn't misspeaking very much. And that's because I put a lot of effort into post-production. I remove any gaps that are longer than a second and a half. I go back through the podcast multiple times and I delete any clips where I'm just sitting there thinking, saying, uh, because I don't want to waste your time with that type of thing. But on this cast, like I said, we're going to try something a little bit different. I'm still going to do editing. I'm still going to do post-processing and all that type of thing. But 
Uh, I'm going to do a little bit less of it so the podcast sounds a little bit more natural. After this, if you liked it better the way it was before with full-on editing and full-on post-processing, just shoot me an email or follow me on Twitter and send me a message that way. Uh, I'm not going to like and beg for subscribes and and all this type of thing and, hey, follow me on Twitter. I don't want to do all that. But if you do want to communicate with me, the best way would be to follow me on Twitter and send me a message that way or just shoot me an email, digitalzenithpodcast at gmail.com. It only takes a few minutes and I'd love your feedback because, again, I want to keep evolving this podcast and uh, creating the content that you like. And I want to continue to improve it. So please provide your feedback. So with that, let's start off by talking about what this podcast was supposed to be all about, which was the greatest games that were never made. Now, there are a whole lot of games that were slated to be released for consoles that were never made. I'm not going to focus on any of those because, again, this is a PC gaming podcast, so I'm only going to focus on games that were 100% confirmed for the PC that were either canceled or never fully realized. Now, something else that you may or may not want to know about me, but I think it's relevant before I dive into my first title here, is that I am an avid reader. I do enjoy reading before bed. Um, If I sit and play a video game, right up to the moment that I need to start getting ready to go to bed for work the next day, I find myself laying in bed staring at the ceiling for a while. Um, Reading really calms me down and gets me ready for sleep. And one book that I read that is really stand out to me as a science fiction novel, in fact, it's been called the greatest science fiction novel of all time, and that would be Dune. For those of you listening that know, yes, I am aware that they did make a Dune RTS-style game many, many years ago. But when I'm talking about making a Dune video game, I'm talking about a fully realized first-person or third-person game, semi-open world maybe, that focuses on story, narrative, all the conflicts between the different houses, the betrayal the assassinations, the survival aspect of it. I mean, there's so much content there to make an amazing game. It's really a shame that it's never happened. And for those of you that have never read the book, really what it is is it's a fully realized universe that the author has created. It's set more than 20,000 years in the future. The book focuses on a battle to control a planet called Arrakis. And on this planet, they mine something that they refer to as the spice. The spice is an addictive substance that prolongs life and in some cases will give the user glimpses into the future. Excuse me. And the spice is also essential for interstellar travel. It allows starship pilots to look across vast distances and plot their course. So imagine a substance with the combined worldwide value of cocaine and petroleum, and you'll have some idea just how sought after this spice is and what lengths these different houses will go to maintain control of it. And to be honest, this is one of those books that it's it's very long, and it's not the easiest read out there. I found myself having to 
reread a lot of different sections just so I could make sure that I fully understood the plot and what was happening. And as far as the movie goes that was made in the 80s, you know, if you have never read the book and you watch the movie, it, it's just going to seem like complete dog shit because it, it, the movie doesn't really do a very good job of capturing all of the different conflict and creating the proper narrative based on the book. And you know something? I don't even blame the director or the producers of that movie. I mean, this is one of those stories that is extremely hard to condense into a two-hour feature-length film. However, having said that, if you have read the book and you understand the story and you know what's going on, you can watch the movie and really enjoy it. Because even though it was made in the 80s and some of the special effects are a little bit cheesy, but it's still enjoyable for people who know and understand the story. So if you take one thing away from this little monologue, it would be read the book, then watch the movie. And make sure that if you are going to watch the movie, don't watch the theatrical release. Get the uh, extended edition director's cut. Uh, There's like a half hour uh, of additional footage that really goes a long way to completing the story. And it makes a whole lot more sense than the original theatrical release. Now, getting back to the whole, hey, this should have been a video game thing. Here's a little something interesting that I happen to come across... I don't know, maybe three or four months ago, Victor Antonov did a Ask Me Anything on Reddit. And if you don't know who that is, you probably should. He was conceptual artist for the original Half-Life. He was the one that was responsible for coming up with the art direction and the setting for the story. And uh, he's a basically the main reason that the story took place in a city that resembled that of something in in Eastern Europe. He also went on to work for Arcane and was the lead designer for the original Dishonored. So you can thank him for that Victorian steampunk design aesthetic that we all enjoyed in Dishonored. So anyway, he did a Reddit Ask Me Anything and somebody asked him, quote, what is a project that you wish you could have worked on but didn't, end quote. And Victor Antonov had a one-word answer, and it was Dune. So a lot of you that have neither read the book nor seen the movie are probably wondering, well, what's so great about this setting? And, you know, why should I care? Or why should this be made into a a game at some point? Uh, You're in luck because there is a um, design studio called uh, FZD. And about a year or two ago, they made some uh, concept art for a fake pitch. It was basically just an internal exercise. If we were going to pitch a concept, what would it look like? And they chose Dune as their fake pitch, so to speak. And if you just Google Ancient Sands Concept Work by FZD, it should take you to, uh, the top result should be a, a Gizmodo article where it has this Dune concept art that you can look through. Uh, Just take a look at that. Just take a look at it and imagine to yourself what this would look like on the Frostbite engine or the Unreal 4 engine with a big production budget and really talented artists and modelers. I mean, it just, I think it would be pretty mind-blowing. But let's move on to the next title. 
which is Stalker 2. Um, if you've listened to my first podcast, I talked a little bit about Stalker just because it's one of my favorite games. And if you did listen to that cast, you would know that the first time I played it, I really didn't get it. I didn't put a lot of time into it. And um, I actually didn't like it at all. And I, it wasn't until years later that I went back to it and really gave it an honest shot and learned to love it to, to the point where it's one of my favorite games. And when Stalker 2 was canceled, I was a little bit heartbroken about it because I had just really gotten into the series and then they announced the cancellation. So let's just quickly cover why it is I loved the Stalker series so much because Stalker 2 was just going to be more of that, but on a larger scale with a bigger budget and higher quality. So in my opinion, long story short, Stalker was the perfect blend of an open world FPS, which combined horror, survival, and RPG elements. It's, it's everything that I love stuffed into one game. And there are things like the weapons using actual physics to simulate bullet drop. Uh, it had some of the most advanced AI in any game that I had played. Um, for those of you that don't know, the AI in the Stalker games was referred to as A-Life. And if you fire up a Stalker game and just put your character in a safe spot, and just let the game run for hours and hours and hours, the world is actually changing around you without any interaction from you. There are other stalkers that are roaming the land that will actually move up in rank by themselves, get in firefights with other factions. There are all different kinds of mutants that will go about their business without any interaction from the player. Um, and in fact, there were even rumors that when they were originally developing the game, they actually had to kind of limit the AI because there were instances where other NPCs would actually make it to the end game by themselves ahead of the actual player. So whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I could actually believe it because it really does feel incredibly lifelike. It's it's not it doesn't feel like NPCs and other games like Far Cry, you know, or or GTA or anything like that. I mean, they're they're actually on a mission and they're trying to do something. And that's what made those games so great was that no two playthroughs are the same. It's the random encounters with the A life that makes the game so interesting. You never know what weapon you're going to get from them. You never know if you're going to be ambushed. You never know what's just over the next hill. Is there a big pack of mutants that's traveling from point A to point B that you're going to have to deal with? Um, it's that unpredictability. Oh, fucking phone. I'm sorry. I just silenced it so we won't have to deal with that again. My apologies. Um, where was I? Yes, A-Life. So, yeah, it was that unpredictability and the fact that no two playthroughs were the same is what made that game so much fun. I, I think I've I think I've played through each of them at least three or four times. That's how much fun they are to me. But anyways, getting back to Stalker 2 um, and a little bit of history about the developer GSC Game World. They were the biggest video game developer in the Ukraine at the time. Um, it took seven years for them to create the first Stalker game, Shadow of Chernobyl, 
which is arguably the best game in the, in the series. And it was delayed a bunch of times. And when it finally was released, it was quite buggy, which was one of the things that turned me off to the game initially. Lots of crashes to the desktop, um, strange error codes, broken missions, etc. But over the years, modders, because the game is highly moddable, over the years, modders fixed a lot of those issues and made the game very playable and even released different high-definition texture packs and and different weather patterns that, that improve the game. So the game Stalker 2 was canceled in 2012 by GSC Game World's owner. Uh, nobody knows exactly why it was canceled, but the story goes that, you know, they were a number of years into development and, you know, even though the leaked screenshots and some of the leaked character animations uh, had made it to the public and everything looked very promising, I guess the owner felt that for the amount of money he put into it and the amount of time that they spent, not enough progress was made. And I think he just decided to cash his chips in. So, however, by that time, a large portion of the talent at GSE Game World had long left. And uh, they went on to form 4A Games. And for those of you that don't know, they're the makers of the Metro franchise. And since the cancellation of Stalker 2, the remaining talent kind of ended up all over the place. Some migrated to 4A. Um, Another couple guys went on to form a studio that made the game Cradle with mixed success. And another large chunk of them went on to make a studio called Vostok Games which created the free-to-play online shooter Cerverium, which was supposed to be something in the spirit of Stalker, but, you know, resembles Stalker in absolutely no way other than design aesthetic. So back to Stalker 2. They promised one large seamless zone to explore rather than large areas connected by loading screens. Um, The original Shadow of Chernobyl, there were a bunch of different areas that you could explore and and uh, complete quests in but they were pretty large but they were still connected by loading screens and they were promising something that was fully seamless and a map that showed the play area leaked the area was actually four times larger than all of the shadow of chernobyl areas combined and the map even included the duga 3 antenna complex And if you don't know what that is, Google that because it's one of the most impressive pieces of Soviet engineering that I've seen. And there's a lot of backstory to that. And it was always a shame that it was never included in the original Stalker games. If you're into, you know, rusted, abandoned facilities and you like that type of thing, definitely look into that. It's a, just as an aside, it's very interesting. Uh, The new and improved X-Ray engine which was built in-house by them, was going to fully support DirectX 11. It's long dead. As I said, developers have gone to many different studios to work on all kinds of different games. So at this point, the closest thing we will probably ever get to Stalker 2 will be 4A's next Metro game. It is coming. They have confirmed that it is coming, although they have not said when. They've been working on the next one for about uh, getting on four years now since Last Light was released. And they did promise more of a sandbox-style Metro game. But if they can create a Metro game uh, on the scale of Stalker, 
you know, but with, but with the graphics and production value that Metro has, I think that would satisfy my need. I can tell you that. Um, and 4A Games has actually experimented a little bit with uh, dense open worlds in their DLC. There's one DLC mission in particular where um, you could go wherever you wanted in order to complete the quests. It wasn't linear really at all. And I think that was a little bit of experimentation on their part. So I'm really looking forward to that because nothing since Stalker has really scratched that Stalker itch. However, I think a testament to how brilliant the game was is the modding scene. Uh, ModDB recently did their Mod of the Year contest and a Stalker Mod won first place, Call of Chernobyl, which even beat out that uh, Skyrim mod, which was more or less a whole entire new game. Uh, Fans of Stalker are very, very diehard. They love the series that much. And moving on to the next title, it would be Half-Life 2 Episode 4. Not 3, but 4, Return to Ravenholm. Um, there was a, a story on PC Gamer and a, and a few other online publications, I think maybe two years ago, where concept art and uh, some actual screenshots were leaked from an alpha version of this game. Now, the interesting thing about this title was it was going to be made by Arcane Studios, the makers of Dishonored, or that's the series that they're known most for, uh, and Valve. Uh, Arcane was going to basically do all the heavy lifting with oversight by Valve. In January of 2012, Mark Laidlaw of Valve confirmed the rumor that the fourth installation of Half-Life 2's episodes was canceled, uh, but he did confirm that it did exist and that it was being developed by Arcane. Um, and as big fans of Arcane, Valve wanted to work with them on a common project. So Valve threw some ideas around about what episode four could look like or be based around. And subsequently, Arcane built some alpha versions and came up with uh, a storyline and created some graphical assets, but Valve being Valve, you know, they got down the road a bit and then they decided it just didn't make sense to pursue it for whatever reason. You know, some people think that a lot of the staples of Ravenholm, which were, you know, the head crabs and the zombies were pretty much played out at this point. Also the fact there was some timeline issues because uh, this story would have had to have take place sometime before the end of episode two so as not to advance beyond where Valve had pushed the story already. So there was a creative constraint there that would hamper the project and also create some issues for Arcane Studios. So that is never going to see the light of day. But it is still fun to look at the concept art and the screenshots and think, hey, what if? And you know, I, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in the PC gaming community that despite not having episode three and not seeing the end of that story arc, I think they'd be more than happy to have something like this just to have some kind of new Half-Life content. I mean, hell, I would take this game with 2007 source graphics. As long as the story was good, I'd be all in. I'd be the first one there. But again, it's Valve, it's canceled, never going to see it. Now, I have one more game on my list, um, and I'd like to talk about Prey 2. Uh, the original Prey, 
I thought, in my opinion, was a fantastic game that really pushed the boundaries of what was possible with game mechanics. The game came out in 2006, and the game actually had portals. Portals just like the game Portal, a year before Portal ever came out. And the portals were even colored orange and blue. You know, so the game was, the game had some interesting mechanics right off the bat that I had never seen. A lot of the combat was kind of so-so, but the puzzles were good. The game made a great use of anti-gravity. And there was even one area that really stood out to me where you went into this cube and your player became really, really tiny. And then the enemies chased you into that environment. And it was just, there was a lot of things that you just never saw before. As a whole, maybe it was a little wonky, but the innovation was there. And I'll tell you what, I'll take innovation over the same old shit any day. You know, I'll deal with, I'll deal with some wonky gameplay just to see something new. And that's what Prey was back in 2006. It was new. And for the time, the graphics were actually quite good. And you know, it's, it's actually bizarre because as I'm recording this, um, earlier today, excuse me, uh, Rock Paper Shotgun did a review on the original Prey. So if you hit, head over to their site, you can actually see what they thought of it. And you know, whoever did the review, I forget his name, but he wasn't, he was none too pleased with the game. Looking at it with 2017 eyes, I, I don't think he was impressed at all. But back in 2006, when it was brand new and it was fresh and a lot of this stuff hadn't been seen, I'm sorry. In context, it's very impressive. Now, I, I don't want to get into the entire backstory of the first game and the plot and this and that. Maybe, maybe you want to play it, but. Um, like I said, Rock Paper Shotgun does a pretty good job of breaking down exactly what the game was about from a story perspective. So if you're interested in that, I'll just advise you to head over there and take a look at what they wrote. But long story short, I was impressed with it. It always stood out in my mind as being somewhat of a breakthrough game with some new mechanics. So when they announced Prey 2, I was excited. And it kind of went through development hell for a while. Um, it was supposed to come out, then it was canceled, then it got picked up again. It was in development with 3D Realms, and uh, I think the original developer was Humid Head Games before the rights to the series were sold to Zenimax Media. So it was being developed under the watchful eye of Bethesda, being under the Zenimax Media umbrella. And it was shown at E3, I think back in 2010, 2011, the first trailer was shown, and people were really excited because... You were in this alien world, you were a human in this alien world, and you were a bounty hunter. And basically the whole game was going to be a series of, of bounty hunts that you had to go on that would get progressively harder. So people saw the trailer, they went nuts, they thought it looked fantastic. Supposedly the game was very deep into development and actually almost being close to being finished. Uh, they were beyond beta, if if I remember correctly. And... Bethesda just decided to pull the plug on it one day. And there was a lot of fallout from that. The developers took to social media and expressed their extreme displeasure with Bethesda's decision. I think they were very heartbroken about it because they put so much work into it and people were so excited to see it. Now, please don't confuse this with the Prey reboot that Arcane is making. 
It has nothing to do with the original game. It has nothing to do with the original story. And it has nothing to do with anything that Prey 2 was going to be. The only thing that is similar between the Prey reboot and the original games is just the name. I think maybe they decided to use the name just for recognition. Now, I have to say, I have to admit, I'm going to get into this a little bit more later, but as heartbroken as I was that Prey 2 would not be developed and that it was canceled, the more and more I read and the more and more I see about the Prey reboot, the more excited I get. I'm actually not so disappointed because that Prey reboot is looking very good. Now, we're going to talk more about that later in my segment where I'm going to talk about the games I'm looking forward to most in 2017 and why, so I'll just leave that there. So, as far as PC games that deserve to be made that were canceled, that's my top four. That's my top four, to be honest with you. Half-Life 3 or Episode 3 is not on this list because it's never been officially canceled, so who the hell knows? Maybe I'm being hopelessly optimistic, but it's not included in the list anyway. So, let me know what you think about those four. Let me know what titles you were heartbroken to see canceled. Uh, What I'd like to move on to now is 2016, which was, for me, a very good year of gaming. There were some highs and there were some lows, just like any other year, but I do want to talk about a few of the games that I played that I have some feedback on. The first one that I want to talk about is one of the ones I enjoyed the least, which was Gears of War 4. And I enjoyed it the least because... It really wasn't anything new. It's it's gears. It's chest-high walls, a lot of shooting, not a lot of character development or story. But the reason I played it was not because I thought I was going to be blown away by some kind of new game mechanic or some, you know, a deep story that I could really immerse myself in. I got it because as a technical showpiece, it's it's very impressive. It's the best showing to date of what Unreal Engine 4 is capable of. And, you know, graphically, the way it ran, a lot of the physics that were included in the game, just an awesome use of phys- physics and environment. Very impressive on all of those fronts. But again, the bad, I just, I can't get over the bad. Repetitive gameplay that just becomes so damn stale so fast. The only thing that kept me going really was just when I was about to give up and say, oh, I've had enough of this chest high wall bullshit, there would be, they would actually throw a cool boss fight in the middle of it. Or they would throw some kind of a set piece that kind of got me interested in the game again and wanted me to keep going. But I can't tell you how many times I was ready to just uninstall, but I just, I stuck with it. You know, it's a cliche story. The character motivations were kind of non-existent. It's the same old shit, you know, spoiler alert. Oh, you know, my mother's been taken. We need to get her back, all that type of thing. Some of the NPC chatter was just incredibly annoying and poorly written. And there wasn't nearly enough exploration. In fact, there was hardly any exploration. It's real. It's extremely linear. I mean, you know, you talk about Metro. I talk about Metro being a linear FPS, but at least Metro had exploration that was rewarded. This game had none. I I mean, this is as linear as it gets. As a technical showpiece, if you have a powerful rig and you want to run the included benchmarking tool for fun, which was actually very well done, then great. As long as you can get it on sale, you'll probably have some fun with it. But 
I can't recommend it for 50 or $60, that's for sure. Let's move on to something that actually blew me away. It was kind of a sleeper hit for me this year, which was Titanfall 2. I did not buy this game for the multiplayer. I really didn't have much interest in the multiplayer at all. I didn't pre-order the game. I didn't buy it on launch day. None of that. Uh, after reviews started coming out, I looked at a couple reviewers that I respect the opinions of, and they all said the single-player campaign is fantastic. So I said, what the hell? I grabbed it. And I got to tell you, it's one of the better single-player campaigns that I've played. They did a great job with the relationship between the pilot and the Titan. Uh, the environments were all very um, varied in appearance and visually stunning at times. The boss fights against all the different mercenaries were, were really fun. And some of those characters were, were really funny. There was a lot of uh, comedic value in, with some of them. Uh, weapons, very fun to use. The sounds and the models of the weapons and the different firing modes were great. And a lot of the weapons were very situational, which, which I liked. You had to do a little bit of thinking and, and preparation for some of the boss fights and some of the sections as it related to what weapons you were going to use that would have um, the most effect. Uh, the movement mechanics were tied to the game environments in such a way that every time a new mechanic was introduced, you had to utilize that mechanic in that particular level. And then as the game progressed, each level introduced a new mechanic until later in the game, now you're taking everything that you've learned over the course of these different levels and putting it together to navigate the environment and to complete your objective. It was great. It, the progression was fantastic in this game. A little bit of a spoiler alert. I'm going to talk about this more later, but there was one level that included uh, some time travel, which was a standout moment for me in 2016. So, even if you're not interested in the multiplayer, if you can grab this game from, you know, Green Man Gaming or some other site on sale, I mean, this is worth every bit. I paid full price for it, and I don't regret it one bit. I mean, the campaign took me six, seven hours, something like that, but it was such a good, it was such, it was time well spent. You know, it was, it was time well spent, and I would much rather have a, an experience like this that lasts seven hours that blows me away than to just mindlessly wander around some open world grabbing collectibles just for the sake of making the game 20, 30, or 40 hours. You know, th this was a good game. If you haven't played it, get it. You will not regret it. So, moving on to another standout title for me, which deserves a little bit of explanation, but uh, Dishonored 2. Now, there was a lot of backlash online when PC Gamer announced Dishonored 2, their game of the year. Reason being, uh, at launch, this game was a complete mess. So, I have a Titan X, Max, a Maxwell-based Titan X, but it's still a beast of a card. And I had a 5930X CPU and 32 gigs of RAM. And guess what? This game ran like shit. I fired it up set my graphic settings, went through the intro. As soon as I was able to control the character and start moving around the environment, I mean, it was just awful. There were strange mouse acceleration issues. There was all kinds of clipping and hitching. and it, it, it just did not feel right. It didn't play well at all. 
And it was at that moment that I said, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess around with this. I'm not going to bash my head against the wall, trying to get this thing to run the way I want it to run. I'm just going to walk away. Patches will come eventually. And then I will revisit it. And that's what I did. I waited three weeks or so. I don't know. I think it was about three weeks. Maybe it was even close to four. It might've even been a month, but once they released patch 1.3, people were saying that, okay, the majority of the issues have been solved. The game runs the game runs well. Thanks. And that's when I decided to fire it back up and get back into it. I had no opinion on it up to that point. And let me tell you, despite the launch issues, now I kind of see where PC Gamer was going with that. We should not excuse developers from making shitty PC ports. We should never excuse them for that. However, the game itself was so good, in my opinion, that I can almost forgive it. I won't forgive it, but I can almost forgive the launch issues because the game was so good. Obviously, the art direction is second to none. I mean, you just cannot beat the art direction of the Dishonored games. And the second one, even though it was different from the first, it still had a similar design aesthetic as far as the characters and the environment went. And I just can't get enough of it. And there was so much variety in gameplay, depending on the skills that you choose and the type of run you're doing, whether it is a stealth run or a chaos run. I did a chaos run the first time through because I was just having way too much fun stringing attacks together and finding all kinds of crazy, interesting ways to kill my opponents. So I finished the game and it's one of the first games in a long time where as soon as I finished it on a high chaos run, I immediately said, you know what? I'm going to switch characters and I'm going to do a stealth run. That's how much I enjoyed it. Um, exploration. I love games with exploration and this game has it. You have so many different routes that you can go. And if you are patient and you're the type of gamer that likes to explore every nook and cranny, it will be rewarded. You'll find the combination to that safe that has a rune in it. You will find uh, some interesting notes or audio logs that add to the lore and the enjoyment of the game world. Again, I, I, I talked about the variety in gameplay depending on skills. No matter what skills you choose, there's multiple routes to complete your objective. It's, it's just the way that they allow you to kind of stack these little blocks together. It, it, it's really something. And, and that's part of the reason why I'm so excited for the Prey reboot because it's made by Arcane and they know how to do these. They know how to make these games that allow player agency and player freedom. So I just had endless fun with this game and the soundtrack was just fucking killer. I apologize for the swearing. Some of you might have kids in the car. I apologize, but it really was that good. It set the mood perfectly. It all, it, it gelled together just right. Can't recommend it enough. So I just talked about a few of the titles I played this year. I played a lot of titles this past year. But, you know, I'm not going to have a little monologue about each and every one. We'd, we'd be here for hours. I just wanted to touch on those three very quickly. But I'm going to talk about a few more now um, because it fits into my top gaming moments of 2016. Now, this will contain spoilers. So if you don't want to be spoiled on any of these titles, then maybe just fast forward a bit. But I, I need to talk about these because they were that good. Um, a a little earlier, I talked about the time travel level in Titanfall 2. 
It was called, I believe it was called Effect and Cause. And it was definitely the high point of the game for me. And if you don't have the game and you don't plan on getting the game, at least watch a playthrough of this particular area on YouTube because it was so well done. And I like the feeling of isolation. And I like the feeling of the odds being stacked against you. And that's pretty much what this section of the game captured for me. You know, you're just, you're alone. You don't have your Titan with you. And you're trying to navigate this building by going back and forth through time. And coincidentally, my favorite section of Dishonored 2 had a similar mechanic. The section of Dishonored 2 I'm talking about, the level was called A Crack in the Slab, I believe. And it was a similar thing. You go to this uh, mansion that is in complete disarray. It's crumbling. It's overgrown. And you get this little device that allows you to basically jump from the present to the past. And in both cases, in Titanfall 2 and Dishonored, you're going back and forth between present and past in order to advance through the level. Uh, In the present time, maybe a certain area is blocked off by rubble, but if you go into the past, you can actually get through that section because there's a doorway there. Not so much in Titanfall 2, but in in Dishonored 2, it, it allowed for some really creative ways to get past enemies. And I think Dishonored 2 did it slightly better than Titanfall 2, but they're both standout moments for me. And in fact, I might as well mention another game that I played this past year, which was Quantum Break by Remedy Games, the creators of Alan Wake. I picked it up on sale. I hadn't really planned on buying it, but it was cheap to the point where I said, you know what, I I, I enjoyed Alan Wake for what it was. Let me try this. And the whole entire game is about time travel. And the gameplay in that didn't even come close to how good these levels in Dishonored 2 and Titanfall 2 were that use the time travel mechanic. How's that? A game that was completely focused on time travel failed to use the mechanic in interesting ways compared to these other two titles where it was just one particular level. Now, with Dishonored 2, a lot of people will say the standout moment was the Clockwork Mansion. Yes, that was my second favorite area of the game, but A Crack in the Slab beat it out just because of the environment, the particular soundtrack that played in that area it all came together just perfectly and that's why it slightly beat out the clockwork mansion for me so moving on to my next top gaming moment uh 2016 gaming moments wouldn't be complete without talking about doom wonderful game from front to back but one of the standout moments for me was the hellguard boss fight um on the uh, necropolis level i believe and what made this boss fight for me stand out was number one the enemy design i thought the hell guards were very intimidating looking so just from a pure design point i thought they did a great job on that and then the fact that after you beat one and think to yourself oh that was close i'm glad i did that a second one comes out and then you have to fight two of these guys at once which until you figure out the movement patterns and until you figure out which weapons and how to exploit their shield was challenging until you got to that point. 
Not to mention that some of the attack patterns would change or they would add attacks once you got them down to half health or below half health. So it was a fun boss fight in of itself. But the part that I actually liked the most was after you've actually defeated those bosses, a bunch of, um, I don't know, I guess you would call them spirits of the previously defeated elite guard come out, see what you've done, and just give you this salute as if to say, good fucking job, man. And it was just a great section of the game. That's my favorite section of Doom for me. Um, as far as level design itself, I, I like the foundry the most. Uh, I got lost in there a couple of times trying to find some uh, collectibles, but overall, yeah, I would say the Hellguard was a standout moment for me in Doom. And I just want to touch on one more top gaming moment for me this past year, which was in Dark Souls 3, the Nameless King boss fight. That was just, wow. Um, just from a enemy design point of view, that was great. You know, so not only do you have to deal with the Rider of the Storm, but once you take him out, then the real challenge begins when you actually have to fight hand-to-hand with the Nameless King. Uh, he was probably the coolest boss in Dark Souls 3 by far, at least in my opinion. Um, his moveset was a little more unpredictable than the rest, and what I liked about the level design in that one was it was really foggy or misty or cloudy or, or all of the above, and he had these attacks that utilized uh, lightning around his weapon. And if he got far enough away from you, you almost couldn't even see him. You didn't even know where he was. And then he would start his attack with his weapon that had the lightning. And all of a sudden you would see the lightning through the, through the clouds and you would kind of know where he was coming from. So it was a really intense boss fight. And I did enjoy the soundtrack that they included with that boss fight as well. Uh, not so much the first stage when you're trying to take down the Rider of the Storm, but the music that kicks in when the Nameless King fights you face-to-face. That was an incredibly rewarding experience, beating him. I don't know. Everybody's got a different opinion when it comes to Dark Souls. Some people just understand different attack patterns better, and I think it depends on your build as well. Because I know a lot of people that had trouble with some of the early game bosses that I kind of breezed through. But then once they got to the late game, they just had no issue with some of the attack patterns of the late game bosses. So everybody has their own opinions. But for me, the Nameless King was pretty difficult. Actually more difficult than the than the end boss. So it was a standout moment for me. I think that uh, From Software should be given some props for Dark Souls 3 because... I was a little bit disappointed in Dark Souls 3, or excuse me, I was a little disappointed with Dark Souls 2 after 1 being such an amazing title, but Dark Souls 3, in my opinion, is the sequel to Dark Souls 1 that we all deserved, and now we have it. So props to From Software, I'm really looking forward to what they do next, because whatever it is, it's probably not going to be any high fantasy-based type game. I think they've kind of worn out their welcome on that. And I think they've done enough of it. So I'm curious to see what they do with uh, something else and something different. And with that, let's move on to my most anticipated games of 2017. 
Uh, I'm going to start off by saying that I'm really excited for Resident Evil 7. I played the demo, and yes, it's not traditional Resident Evil in the sense that it's not a third-person game. They've switched to first-person, but graphically, when you crank it up, I think it looks really, really good. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discourse online about the demo and, you know, some people like it, some people hate it, but again, it's all, it's all personal preference at the end of the day. And for me, I really like it. It's, um, it's certainly much better than them going in the direction that Resident Evil 5 and 6 went in. I mean, by the time they got to Resident Evil 6, it wasn't even a survival horror game anymore. You know, it was just, it was just. A th- like a third person shooter. So I like the direction they're going in. Uh, I was genuinely freaked out a few times in the demo and the full game comes out on the 24th and I'm locked and loaded. I'm ready to go. I, it's been a long time since I've played a horror game that I really got into. Uh, the evil within was the last one that I really enjoyed. So th- the good ones are few and far between. And I really have a feeling that resident evil seven is going to be a very good title And we'll find out in a matter of a couple of weeks. So the next thing I'm really looking forward to seeing is Quake Champions. Uh, A lot of diehard Quake fans are kind of uneasy about this game just because of some of the changes that they're making. But from what I've been reading from some of the professional Quake players that still play, you know, Quake Live uh, and that were at QuakeCon and actually played the game, despite some of the changes, it still feels like Quake. And let's be honest, when's the last time we had an arena shooter in the vein of, you know, Quake? Uh, Unreal, it, you know, it looks great, it plays great, the new one that's that's free to play, but it's not complete and it won't be complete for a while. But with Quake Champions, the full weight of the studio is behind it. They've got the budget, they're listening to the pro players apparently, so I'm really excited to see it. They haven't done much marketing with it so far. Uh, there was, you know, a little bit of video that leaked from QuakeCon, but other than that, not much is, is known and not much has been seen except for that one trailer. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with that because I would love to get back into some Quake. Let's see, what do we got here? What's next? Oh, yeah, I talked about Prey, the Prey reboot that's being developed by Arcane. If you haven't taken a really close look at that, I recommend that you do. Game Informer last month had a whole bunch of information on it. They had kind of an exclusive on it last month, and they had a lot of interesting interviews talking about the different ways that you can play the game. If you like Dishonored and you like Arcane's design philosophy and the way that they build their games and they allow player choice and player agency, then I'm pretty sure you're going to like this because it looks like a whole lot more of that and then some. Plus, it's a, it's a space station sci-fi theme. Pretty pumped for that, actually. I'm really hoping that that ends up being everything that uh, we hope and they hope it will be. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Oh, here's something that, I, I don't know, I really didn't think, it's not really my type of game, but uh, Near Automata. Kind of, a, it's, a, it's a hack and slash title. Um, if, you, if you've never heard of it, take a look at it. What's interesting to me about this is there was a lot of buzz about it online, kind of similar to the buzz around Dark Souls when it released for PC. So I decided to look into it more and the environmental design, the character design, the enemy design, it's very, very distinct. And that's what caught my eye initially. 
And like I said, I'm not much into a super fast hack and slash type game, but the combat does look like a whole hell of a lot of fun. There was a cult following with the first Nier game, and this one really looks good. If you watch the trailers, what's interesting to this about me is that it is uh, like a third-person action hack and slash, but the camera changes perspective and it kind of becomes a different game. For the majority of the game, it looks like Yes, the combat is kind of third-person action RPG type stuff, but then there are sections where the camera changes perspective and it becomes a 2D platformer. And then there are sections where the camera goes to overhead and you go through certain sections of the game with a top-down view. So it's really something. And the boss fight that was in the demo, unfortunately the demo is only for PS4, which I do not have, but this game is coming to PC on Steam They haven't announced a date yet, but it's coming out for the PlayStation in March. But they released a demo on the PlayStation and, you know, it showed one of the boss fights. And it's one of those games where the bosses are just this ridiculously epic scale. It's one of those Japanese action games. It's a little bit weird, but that's kind of what I like about it. So I didn't expect to be interested in it, if that makes sense. But it really has my attention and I'm definitely going to be checking that out. And... Finally, again, this is most anticipated announced games of 2017 that are definitely coming out in 2017. So the list is rather short, but you've got Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly much more pretty than the previous Mass Effect games. It's on the Frostbite engine now, whereas the original was on the uh, Unreal 3 engine. So, you know, when it comes to graphics... Shading, particle effects, uh, you you know, you can't even compare. In that regard, it looks good, but I don't know. I'm not going to say any more about it right now. There's just some things that I've seen and some things that I've read about regarding the development of this game and, you know, just the direction they're going in. I don't know. I'm a little bit wary about getting on the hype train for this game after Dragon Age Inquisition. I just really hope they don't stick a lot of mindless padding in Andromeda, but... We'll see. We'll, we'll know in a couple of months, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, but uh, I'm going to reserve judgment and there's not going to be any pre-ordering here. I'm going to wait until there's full reviews and see how the PC version is. So that's more or less what I have to say for episode three. I just have a couple more things to talk about, a couple more rants that I want to get out there before I end this. And uh, one thing I want to point your attention to was if, um, you know, if you just want to let your mind wander and and look at some cool artwork, if you've never been on ArtStation, check it out. Because what's really interesting about ArtStation is that it's pretty much the go-to place to see video game concept art. And to see the artwork of up-and-coming artists that will develop for games eventually. In fact, it's mostly video game based. Because even though it's kind of like a showcase for all of these artists' creations, it actually has a job board built into it. And a place where you can upload your resume and all this. And all the game studios put job postings on there. So you get to see a lot of this really amazing concept art for for all these different video games. Video games that are out, but also for video games that have yet to be released. So sometimes you'll catch a sneak peek at some some cool character or environmental design for games that uh, are still quite a ways off. So 
Again, if you want to let your mind wander and look at some some cool shit, check out ArtStation. Let's see what else. Yeah, I'm in the middle of building my new rig. I was holding out for the NVIDIA 1080 Ti for this one. I thought it would be announced at CES. It was not. And um, the reason they didn't announce it is probably because AMD is not shipping Vega anytime soon, at least not for the next three, four, five months. So they probably figured, eh, the 1080 is still, you know, 1080 and the Titan are still the fastest cards. Why should we show our hand now? So I decided for now, rather than wait three, four, five more months, I just bought a 1080 for the new rig. So I have all the parts for my new rig. I'm in the middle of building it. It will be a custom loop, custom liquid cooling loop, like my other rigs. Um, I'm really excited about this one. I think it's going to come out really, really nice. And I will post pictures of it on my Instagram, the Digital Zenith Instagram, once it's done. And uh, I'll put it on Twitter as well. And as a closing rant, I just want to talk about my vibe a little bit. I was really looking forward to CES because I was hoping that some new games were going to be shown. But there really wasn't much that I didn't already know about. Uh, The fact remains that because of the enormous amount of money behind Oculus, because of the um, Facebook purchasing Oculus, all of the biggest AAA games are going to the Oculus either first or their Oculus exclusives. Um, 4A's VR game is an Oculus exclusive. Um, there's a bunch of other titles I was interested in. Epic's making Robo Recall. It's an Oculus exclusive. So, you know, I was a little bit bummed out. I was hoping to see some new things at CES, but really all they had was hardware announcements. Now, not to say that they aren't exciting. There is a uh, device to make the Vive wireless now. There is a um, device where you can actually add tracking ability to different objects. So think about being in a game environment and actually putting this tracking device on uh, like a fake rifle and then being able to pick up and hold that rifle and use it in the game. I mean, there's some really cool stuff as far as hardware, but where's all the software? I've had, I pre-ordered my Vive. I was one of the first to get it. And it's an incredibly brilliant and awe-inspiring piece of tech. If you have the money, I, I, I'm not going to tell you not to get it, but you know, to be honest with myself and to be honest with all of you, there really aren't that many great games. A lot of it is, you know, tech demo type stuff. Uh, you know, it comes with Valve's The Lab, which still to this day is one of the most impressive things for the Vive. And it was one of the first things to release for it. There's a game called Call of the Starseed, which I bought and played, which was, it, it, that blew me away. I thought that was an incredible experience in VR. Um, let's see, Raw Data is a fun shooter. But, you know, again, you know, I tried the Serious Sam VR, which is impressive and it's immersive. But again, it's just another wave shooter. So I'm really waiting for another experience to blow me away. But in the meantime, my Vive has been collecting some dust. I've been so busy playing these other games like... Dishonored 2 and um, Titanfall 2 and all this other stuff that I really haven't had much time to use my Vive and there really hasn't been anything that compelling to make me want to put it on. So don't confuse what I'm saying. VR is here to stay. The technology is incredibly impressive. But if you're sitting there and you've got six, seven hundred bucks in your pocket and you're trying to decide, 
geez, what should I do? Should I, you know, buy myself a new video card and maybe some extra RAM and a little of this and a that and a new mechanical keyboard, or should I go all in and buy a Vive? You know what? It's, it's, it's kind of hard for me to tell you to run out and, and get a Vive right now. In six months, maybe that'll be a different story. Just wait. Wait for some really epic titles to come out for the Vive before you buy one. I don't regret my purchase. However, I'm just not getting the use out of it that I would have liked to. So with that, I've gone on long enough. You've been listening to me talk and talk and talk. And uh, I actually had one person shoot me an email saying, hey, will you ever have guests on this show? And yeah, that's my intention. Uh, I need to get my monthly listens up though. Um, I'm going to do six episodes and see where I end up. If I can get to five, 6,000 listens per episode, then I will have enough behind me to go to a few people that I have in mind and say, look, this is my audience. You know, would you like to come on my show and be interviewed? And I've, you know, I've got some questions for you. I do have three or four people in mind that I think you'd really enjoy. I just got to get that, that listener base up a little bit. So anything you can do to help me with that, I would appreciate. And again, follow me on Twitter, shoot me an email, digitalzenithpodcast at gmail.com. And I will tweet about my next episode very soon. Thank you for waiting. I know it's been a big gap between two and three, but here we are. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you. Have a great day.